Lord Jesus, we're filled with gratitude today that you died for us and that you live. Today we find ourselves right in between those realities to reflect on what it really means. So I pray that you got our hearts and our minds to this understanding and even beyond our understanding to embrace this incredible and powerful paradoxical reality that we embrace, we live in, and we live on. So help us today to be renewed in this understanding, this reflection, Lord, in this acceptance. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to, um, it's okay, I want to back up a bit in our passion story. Before Jesus washes his disciples' feet and before he reshapes the Passover around his own body and blood, all of which we celebrated yesterday, on Monday, Thursday. Something quite interesting actually happens immediately after Jesus descends the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem to crowd singing and waving palms. It's easy to overlook this bit because only the Apostle John records what I'm talking about in his gospel. It's in chapter 12, but it's important. It's also not in our readings today, so I welcome you to follow along if you want to uh, on your, in your Bibles or on page 899 of your pew Bibles as I walk us through it. I'm going to read much of it to you. I imagine most of you will actually be, you'll be familiar with one passage on which I want to focus. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Are you familiar with that? Have you heard it before? I want to consider what provoked these words and why it matters on Good Friday. Here's what, what happened, beginning in verse 20 of John 12. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the Passover feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And now something about these Greeks in particular was important. We don't know. They, I don't think they were randos, apparently, but they, this inspired some sense of urgency in Philip. Apparently they weren't, you know, just your average Greeks who happened to be in Jerusalem or Hellenized Greeks, but these were some important people. John goes on saying in verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew... And then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So there's this conferring thing going on. There's a tension around this. You can feel the seriousness as they confer. And they did just happen to be the only um, disciples of Jesus who had Greek names. It's interesting. So Jesus' response in verse 23, it confirms whatever tension here that Andrew and Philip are feeling. How does he respond? He says, it has arrived. Erkomai in Greek. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. It has arrived. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And a direct translation without reordering the Greek um, to put it in English, it reads in this stark way. It has arrived. Erkomai. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Eugene Peterson translates Erkomai simply, time's up. Time's up. And so really, for the larger part of two millennia, this one-word phrase has put readers in mind of another very terse one-word phrase that Jesus cried a week later with his dying breath. Here he cries, Erkomai. And on the cross, we hear it today in our reading. Tetelestai. It is finished. 
Erkamai, it has arrived. Tetelesta, it is finished. Like bookends, as it were, on Jesus' passion, according to John. So in verse 27 of chapter 12, we find out that this request from those Greeks who seem to be unexpected, that it causes Jesus to be overtaken with emotion. So let's just find ourselves there for a moment how Jesus is feeling. And as I mentioned on Sunday, the road down the mountain and into Jerusalem was emotionally hard for Jesus too. And Jesus says this, he says, Now is my soul troubled. Or literally, now I am really shaken. Jesus is just feeling deep anxiety about the impending future, like we do. He continues, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then he immediately turns his troubled heart toward the Father in prayer, saying what? Father, glorify your name. And then something powerful happens here. John tells us that an answer thunders immediately from heaven, declaring, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. People are bewildered by it. They try to explain it. It sounds just like thunder and loudness to some people. It sounds like what they think is the voice of an angel. And then Jesus tells them, he said, this voice was for you, not for me. And then in verse 31, he's emboldened with this prophetic clarity proclaimed this. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Three things. And John narrates in verse 33 saying, he said this to show by what kind of death he would die. There's three declarations. Jesus predicts his cross and what it would mean and what it would accomplish when through surrender to weakness and death, he will subvert power. He will subvert the ultimate symbol of the ultimate godless power of this empire under the sway of the ultimate enemy of God, of humanity and of everything that is good. Whatever else we might actually say about the cross and much ink has been spilled Everything that we end up learning and understanding, everything we learn from Paul and everything from the other apostles about what we call the atonement, I believe it must spring from Jesus' own words and his own understanding. And we find it, at least in part, right here. These three declarations. So let me just walk us through them briefly. He says, now is the judgment of this world. What does that mean? In other words, reality is being laid bare for all to see. Because judgment here, as in really the rest of Scripture, it means exposure of. It means a pulling back of the curtain, a confrontation with what was formerly hidden, what was ignored. It's this long-awaited reckoning, and it's coming, it's here. Now is the judgment of the world. And what is latent in hearts, what's systemic in all the ways of our world, they are about to just flow together in a rushing confluence that floods the streets and floods the halls and the hills of an occupied and anxious Jerusalem. That's what the judgment is that he's talking about. It's a comprehensive reckoning with the truth. You're going to see it all right in front of you, right here. And then we see it. What do we see? We see that Jesus suffers relational sin in his abandonment by his, his friends. Economic sin as Judas sells him for 30 pieces of silver. He suffers ideological sin expressed in religious and judicial and philosophical transgression. What do I mean by that? He's falsely accused. He's tried as a heretic in a kangaroo court by very self-serving clerics. People wearing these kinds of things. 
in the name of God. He suffers the reckless outworking of subjectivism as Pilate shrugs what is truth. And he washes his hands of the problem. Jesus will suffer the sins of mob justice and collectivism. Here he is a son of Israel given by his own people to be cursed and crucified by pagans while a violent insurrectionist, Barabbas, goes free. And finally, he is hung naked as a spectacle to satisfy the cultural sin of bloodlust. Time's up. It's all coming into fine focus. This is the judgment. This is the truth. The sin of humanity rises to its highest point of myopic selfishness and barbarism. There is no greater picture. On the cross, sin sinks to its lowest levels, undetectable decency, compassion, and reason. It makes no sense. It's all there in the story as if nothing sin is and nothing sin does is not demonstrated right there at the cross. Exposed, judged, all of it is centering right there on the suffering God. But what's going on is more than just what people choose to do and more than what they're swept up in doing together, although that's part of it. What does Jesus say, the second declaration? Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The cross becomes a surprising and even paradoxical confrontation that is nothing short of an exorcism. It is an exorcism through divine vulnerability makes no sense and willing weakness makes no sense. Power is being taken from the enemy of God and all that God loves. Jesus isn't vague about who and what is powering this corruption and this injustice. He names it right here. And John affirms this again in his first epistle. This is an important thing for John, remembering what Jesus said he was doing on the cross, chapters 3 and chapters 5 in, in 1 John. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And he who is born of God protects everyone who is born of God, and the evil one does not touch us. We know that we are from God, though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus is glorifying the name. He's glorifying the authority of the living God by means of a crushed spirit, a tortured body, an entombed corpse, taking upon himself the worst of the world under the power of this ruler. For those who are drawn to Jesus, friends, Satan is being shown up and shoved out. At best, because of his defeat on the cross, this enemy can only do what? Tempt from below, not control from above. So we boldly revoice that exorcism at our baptism. And again, together, as Jesus taught us, when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And when we do that, we're rightly and we are boldly appropriating the power of the cross as Jesus explained it and understood it. And finally, the third one, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Simply put, this magnetic and illuminating truth of the cross has not stopped. Even in all the church's failures, and it will not stop drawing people to its power universally and mysteriously from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every background, every family, and every story. 
out of every imaginable sin and, and suffering. Despite every doubt, despite every question and perversion of knowledge and justice, the cross still has power to overthrow evil and to beckon hearts and minds once enslaved. Even when the church gets it wrong, friends, the cross gets it right. Christ remains lifted up. At the cross, we must see things for what they really are. Unvarnished, like a mirror, but I also like to think of it like this way, also as a telescope and a microscope. Like a telescope, the cross does what? It brings near the massive problem that might seem to us very remote from us individually, as though we're not implicated, as though we're not affected. But it brings that big reality into focus for us. And then, like a microscope, what does it do? It brings into bold definition, very clear and very fine and very precise, what might seem too small to detect or even concern ourselves with. The pharisaical leaven in the dough. The little foxes that spoil the vineyard. The cross brings those seemingly undetectable things into focus. The cross exposes every thought, every word, and every deed of dishonor and contempt that cuts our neighbor to the bone and widens every gap between us. It weakens our mutuality as humans and hospitality and peace at scale. So the cross interrogates the sweeping systems that we make and cultural delusions that are the waters we swim in and we don't realize it, the subjective shrug that only tightens the grip of insecurity and doubt in our children. But friends, here's the thing, and here's what I want you to really hold on to this afternoon on this Good Friday, the really beautiful and paradoxical thing about all of this. The judgment of God And the confrontation with evil, it doesn't cast us out. It draws us in. And all of its power displayed in weakness, which is power, draws us in. And when it does, by grace through faith, we embrace the ugly truth that restores beauty. And C.S. Lewis said, by its light we see everything else. And that's where Jesus takes this in in John 12. He takes the imagery, verse 46, saying, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We can see, and without the cross, let's be honest, without the cross, the world cannot begin to make sense of real progress, of care and education for the poor, of radical forgiveness in Rwanda, of the civil rights movement in America, of hospitals and orphanages and shelters and soup lines all around the world because the cross is still casting its light and drawing people. The cross is still subverting our ways that are nothing short of entropy, destruction. It keeps casting darkness out and the enemy is perpetually shown up and shoved out. So brothers and sisters, when a troubled Jesus fresh to, to, to Jerusalem and troubled you know, in spirit, he says, it has arrived. That's a promise that was beginning to be fulfilled. And when his mouth, dry but for blood and vinegar, opened one last time to say, it is finished, that promise was being broadcast to the world. And that promise still echoes against all odds. Because by the cross, we've been drawn in. 
He's still drawing you in. That's what I want you to hear me say today and the cross say. He's drawing you, no matter how far away you feel, no matter what you've gone through, no matter where you find yourself today. The cross is still doing its work. Drawing. And he will forever draw us. Forever and ever. World without end. Do you believe it? Well, that's why we call this Good Friday. Lord Jesus, draw us today. We confess that our hearts are often far from you, but you are never far from us. And your cross continues to draw. It continues to be sufficient to expose, to cast out our enemy, and to give us a home, the sons and daughters of the living God. And we thank you for it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.